Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 708, the Phillip Island MotoGP Review. With me to tackle all the amazing, crazy, wicked, fun action that was on the island, because the island never disappoints people, is Rich Shallot from the UK. Rich, how about that racing from the weekend? Whoa, Jim, what a... Oh, I can't wait to talk about this. I mean, I know there is a separate event called the Phillip Island Classic, but I think last weekend could lay claim to that title because it was classic in certainly two of the three races, but the MotoGP race was off the charts. So, yeah, looking forward to chatting about this one. I will echo the quote of one Mr. David Emmett. Can we have 22 races at Phillip Island, please? Yeah, that works for me. (laughs) I think that goes to show you that an imperfect racetrack is a perfect racetrack. By that, I mean, there was never any plan for how they were going to build that track. They just kind of willy-nilly ran around with a bulldozer and made something. Hewed out of a hillside, yeah. And carved it out, right? Laguna Seca was the sort of the same way. The corkscrew was never a thought-up corner. It was, well, I think we can get the paving equipment down if we go like this. Yeah. And I think that's what we love. I think we love tracks that are imperfect, which provides them the perfect means by which to ride. Instead of these perfectly built telcodrome kind of things, it's, nah. yeah, <laughs> there's a few of them that are good, but Jim, it's like Brands Hatch, you know, that that place was conceived way before a computer ever got into the mix. All right, let's get into some listener feedback that we had from the previous week. Rich, do you want to start us off with a little feedback from our uh, good friend, Mr. Gary Shavit? Yeah, he's been in touch and coming up with some nice ideas and some comments. So I'm going to try and paraphrase a little bit. I think Gary's sort of spouting off a little bit about the fact that Ducati, as I think we felt pre-season, likely to win the championship. Probably a bit of team orders behind it all. I think the interesting one, though, that I just really wanted to pick up, and certainly I replied to, and I think you did as well, Jim, was uh, Gary says, is Marquez staying off the podium intentionally to earn concessions for Honda? Would they, Honda or HRC, be willing to suffer the embarrassment of the advantages Sounds conspiratorial, I know, and very un-Japanese, but would they be desperate enough to do it? Well, uh, I think the race on Sunday, which we'll come to, kind of told us the answer to that question. Mm, I think so. (laughs) I think we got the answer that we were looking for out of that one. But, you know, I will say that Marquez is a racer, and uh, getting him to do anything other than race is going to be really difficult. Well, we'll get to what happened in the race. I mean, I'm sure most of the listeners actually know already, but um, certainly there was no obvious signs that uh, anybody was kind of playing for concessions next season. It was a full-on race, as we'll come to. Yep. All right, so let's get to the uh, second bit of feedback. Uh, that was, This is from Lee, quite the long email, as he's con- talking about the copy of the Ducati Stegosaurus rear seat onto Mark Marquez's Honda. And he was trying to lay out basically what he believes that they're there for. And essentially he's in a nutshell, they're there for when the bike is leaned over into a corner, you are able to produce some rear downforce on the rear tire and allow you to get a little bit more traction that's there and talking about how it uh, creates a longer fulcrum for it. And there's all this talk of, Momentum and all this stuff, which I totally enjoy because as as an engineer, I, I get into all of that stuff. So it's really pretty good what he's thought. And I have to agree 
with everything that Lee's saying that, yes, they're all very much distinct possibilities and they probably are exactly what he thinks is happening. It's there to create a little bit of downforce on the rear, create some stabilization in the corner and, and not so much more for traction. I mean, it's there for traction as well, but I also think that it's maybe there to provide a consistent feel for the rider to be able to pick the throttle up so we can stay out of the traction control. So this, the standardized ECU, it's kind of an intrusive. I think that by having better feel, a better connection between the two, the throttle and the rear with these aerodynamic aids is also is, is important. But the other thing I think that it does is when you're braking in a straight line, we know that the front Michelin isn't as good as the Bridgestone. And we know that the rear Michelin is much grippier than the old Bridgestone. So I think the wings are also there to aid a little bit in hard braking that they give some amount of downforce on the back to push the back end down to stabilize it a little bit better when they're going into the corners. So that's my take on it. I'm not an aerodynamicist, just a plain old mechanical engineer. So I'd really love to know someone who actually knows aerodynamics and t- could tell us what's there. Uh, I do know that KTM has taken some of their lead from Red Bull's F1 team and as far as the aerodynamics and how they looked at it. So definitely the world of aerodynamics is becoming more and more important in the, in the show and making things go fast. The dark art of aerodynamics. I mean, I don't understand it. One I owe to Jim, I'm afraid. So all I know is that I just aesthetically, I don't like it very much. I guess we need to talk a little bit about aero because people were predicting in the MotoGP class, obviously I'm talking about, that aero was potentially going to be quite a big issue. And, and in fact, I think I'm right in saying that there was a ruling that came out early in the weekend whereby the teams were allowed to remove some of the aero, even though they're not really supposed to do that. But I think there were some concerns around the weather and the wind, in particular, and the fact that it might be causing problems for these bikes that generate so much aerodynamic downforce in different ways. But I mean, it didn't actually quite turn out that way, did it, as it turned out. But I guess we'll come to that later on. But yes, aero, uh, I don't know. It's The genie's out of the bottle, isn't it? This is the problem. Yeah. So they also figured out that actually having the arrow helped more than they thought. <laughs> so because you're able to put that pressure on the front end, so you have that front end grip, the bike isn't as likely to sort of follow around or become vague underneath of you, which is what you really don't want. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's one of those counterintuitive things you think of with like Formula One. We put more wing on the car on a track that has a long straightaway, but has a very twisty bit to it. The more wing gives you faster through all those corners which negates the deficit that you have on the straightaway. So sort of that same thing at play here, I think, on the island. Uh, You know, what we thought was going to be bad, having all those arrow bits and flicks and winglets was going to be bad and be not as good, turned out to be better than what we would if we would would take them off. So black art, black art, black art. You never know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. So with the feedback done, Rich, let's uh, bump into the news here. Won't you tell us, uh, give us an update on the Gino Ray fund? Yeah, just a very quick one. So the... Uh, the total on the fund is kind of slowly trickling up. It's currently at 81 or just over £81,000 now, which is, uh, you know, it's a hell of a number when you think about it. As we've said before on past shows, they've got a target of £125,000, I'm talking about because we're in Britain. Uh, there's an event at Mallory Park racetrack in the UK this weekend. I think it's probably the Race of Champions, I think they call it. So there's quite a lot of high-profile stars turning up to that one, very much targeted around raising funds. So it'll be interesting to see how the pot stands when we get together, hopefully sometime next week, Jim, uh, work and various things allowing. Um, and obviously, you know, we're still shouting out to the listeners if they can 
contribute through the GoFundMe page that Gino Ray's family have set up, then we're still matching those contributions. So if you can contribute people, then please do so because it's a very worthy cause. Yep, it is a worthy cause. So let's actually get to some news news now. In the paddock, we had uh, confirming that Cam Bobier was leaving the American Racers team in Moto2, and we learned that Britt Rory Skinner will replace him. Your thoughts on that, Rich? Well, yes. I mean, this has been talked about for a while, actually. Uh, I think it's quite well known that Rory Skinner, who might not be terribly familiar to a lot of the listeners, he was in the Red Bull Rookies. I mean, he's had a quite a starring career in the lower classes, but as has tended to bedevil a lot of British riders, in, well, not just British riders, but certainly it is a problem uh, for British riders, has never really had the financial backing. Uh, so he kind of landed back in the British Superbike paddock, absolutely tore the field up in Supersport a couple of seasons ago, was completely unbeatable and really showed what he could do. That got him onto the Kawasaki British Superbike ride. He's won one or two races, and it's probably, to be fair, not the most complete package of a bike on the grid, but he has some real class. And I think on the Moto2 bike, okay, it's not 600, it's a bit bigger and a bit more complicated, but he had a couple of very sort of creditworthy outings at Silverstone and the Rebel Ring uh, for the American racing team earlier this year. And his management team are part of the American racing setup. So I think it was a a fairly logical move for him to end up in there once Cam had suggested that he was going back to America, which is a shame. But I guess, I don't know, Jim, but I'm guessing Sean Dillon Kelly will remain in the team for next year. Do you know if that's confirmed? Yes, he will remain in the team. So he will partner Skinner. Right. Okay. I mean, big things are expected of Rory Skinner. He's got a two-year deal, which I think is very, very important as well. So assuming that's a reasonably solid contract, as I say, his management are part of that team. So I think they are going to give him time to really find his form in the class. And even this weekend with Sean Dunn Kelly, he had a pretty good race, didn't he, this weekend gone? Or certainly much better and flashes of better form than we've seen so far. And it does take a couple of seasons, maybe even a season or two more often for people to really find their feet and start to perform. So yeah, good news for Rory Skinner fans. I count myself as one of those and it'll be interesting to see how he gets on next year. Yep. Me too. Uh, last bit of rider replacing news. We know that Marcel Schroeder was leaving his Moto2 team, but Darren Bender, who was in MotoGP with the With You Yamaha, will be taking Marcel Schroeder's spot. So the man who skipped over Moto2 has to go back to Moto2 because he's not wanted in MotoGP. So yeah. sad to see. Yeah, it's a shame. For, he's had a good year, to be fair, hasn't he, Jim? I, think, I don't think he's disgraced himself, and he certainly hasn't turned out to be the sort of the disaster that a lot of people kind of predicted. So it's a little bit hard on him to have to drop down, but not a huge surprise. But I think he drops down from MotoGP with a certain amount of pride intact, don't you think? Uh, yeah, at least he stayed in the paddock. I mean, Remy couldn't even get that done. And if I had yeah. my choice, I think I'd rather have Remy in MotoGP somewhere as opposed to being in World Superbike. I think that's a tremendous coup for World Superbike versus MotoGP. That, I don't know. That's all I got for it. <laughs> I agree. Well, I agree. It's tough on both of those guys, really. I, I can understand why Remy didn't want to go back down to Moto2, haven't been in that class. Or haven't been champion. Been the champion, so I mean, it, it would be pretty unpalatable, I think, for him to go there. So, I guess in that context, World Superbike makes more sense. Uh, whereas for Darren going to Moto2, which is where he probably should have been this year anyway, 
yeah, I mean, that's logical too. So just all parts of the um, swings and roundabouts of modern day MotoGP, isn't it? That is true. So since we kind of mentioned World Superbike, we the World Superbike will be racing at San Juan Circuit in Argentina this weekend. So we have Malaysia, and given the time zone changes, you'll be able to watch both without having to worry about missing anything. So that'll be good. <laughs> We also have to report the sad passing of Victor Steeman's mother. He, just a few days after her son died, you know, Victor was in World Supersport 300 and yeah. he passed away due to injuries racing. And then a couple of days later, his mother's now passed. So uh, I do not know what other tragedy could befall that family. So our deepest sympathies and condolences go out to the family themselves because this is just terrible that uh, you get to here within the matter of days. It's just horrible. The utter overwhelming grief of what happened to her son, obviously, must have taken its toll, mustn't it? But yeah, terribly, terribly sad news mm. for that family. Yep, but we do have one champion to report, and that's in BSB. So, Rich, tell us who is the Superbike champion? A few things just to quickly mention in the news then. So, in BSB, I mean, it's not a huge surprise, to be fair, but Bradley Ray wrapped up the title. So, we had the final round of BSB this weekend at Brands Hatch. Three races, one on Saturday, two on Sunday. So, as expected, I can't remember precisely how many points Brad had to score over and above anybody else. It wasn't a big number. I think it was like eight points or something like that. So, he was able to have a fairly sensible, not comfortable, but sensible ride on the Saturday to secure the points that he needed to win the championship. So, great for Brad. I mean, he's been stunning all year and absolutely a great deserving uh, 2022 BSB champion. Hoping, unlike his predecessor, Taz McKenzie, who wasn't able to get into World Superbike on the back of him being champion last year, there is some talk that Brad might get a ride in World Superbike or a part-time ride in World Superbike. I mean, I still lament the fact that there isn't some automatic kind of progression that takes place for various national champions in their respective Superbike series. But anyway, I mean, that doesn't exist. Just very quickly... Penalties are back in the news again, and we've touched on this on past couple of episodes of the pod with BSB starting to... It's funny, Jim, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if you've seen this in Moto America at all. I'd be interested to see what your thoughts are. But once things start to happen in the, the gilded towers of MotoGP and Formula One and places like this, you tend to get a bit of a trickle down in terms of the way that certain rules and decisions tend to be handled. So have you seen any of this over on your side of the pond? I can't say that I've seen it here. There really hasn't been a penalty that would require an intervention. It, I think ours is more safety issues and lack of corner workers that's driving yeah. most of the problems in Moto America, not the officiating of the series. It'd be interesting to hear from any listeners that, I mean, obviously, if you go around the world, I don't have a detailed knowledge, but knowledge, but I know, for example, in Germany and Italy and places like this, they have pretty strong national superbike championships, I believe. So it'd be interesting to get some context if other people have any comments on this. Now, in the case of British superbikes, just briefly, I won't go on about this for too long. In terms of safety calls, you know, when there are things happening on track which have an impact on rider or marshal safety in particular... Uh, impeccable i mean nothing to say but we are starting to see this creep of sort of well what i tend to call kind of over regulation and kind of analysis paralysis almost uh, and, and you inevitably get into what we've seen in moto gp and we've definitely seen it in formula one where similar incidents appear to have different outcomes in terms of penalties so 
just very briefly, I mean, people that have listened to the last few episodes will remember that Jason O'Halloran at Alton Park was, let's say, taken out. I mean, in one case, I think he was overtaken and had a crash kind of that he contributed to more so. And then in the other race in Alton Park, he certainly was taken out. Moving on to the next round at Donington Park, O'Halloran himself just completely dive-bombed Tom Sykes in the, I think it was the third race of the weekend, completely out of control, went straight into the back of Sykes, took them both out. Now, O'Halloran got a three-grid penalty for that incident, which carried over to the Brands weekend that we've just had. So he served that penalty in race one. Okay, fine. Then in, I think it was race two... Andrew Irwin on the Synetic BMW, he put a pass on O'Halloran again. I mean, poor old O'Halloran, he seems to be constantly involved in all these things. But so Irwin took a dive up the inside. It wasn't by Andy Irwin's standards a particularly outrageous move. I think possibly what happened was he might have just slightly locked the front and it caused him to kind of just sit up momentarily. And as can happen in racing, they touched and, you know, it put O'Halloran down. So, okay, you know that Andy Irwin's going to get a penalty in this day and age for that. But the penalty that he got was a three grid place penalty for the next race two points on his license and a 20 second deduction in his race time because he finished that race where O'Halloran didn't so for seemingly well I wouldn't even say they were similar because I mean in the Donington one that I'm citing O'Halloran absolutely was out of control and hit Sykes off Whereas in the Brands incident I've just described, Andy Irwin made a small error, perhaps a small lockup on the front, which caused him to sit the bike up a tiny bit and gets a much, much more draconian penalty for it. So I don't know. This is the sort of thing that we're just continually going to be talking about forever and a day, I think, if we're not careful. Uh, I don't know what you think, Jim. I mean, hopefully I've explained what happened, but it does appear to be the case that similar-ish incidents are handled very differently in terms of the outcomes. And I think it's just a bit frustrating for the fans when that starts to happen. I think so. The worst thing you can have is what the fan base will perceive as unfair officiating of instances that appear to be very similar. And when you do that, the fans get mad because what's going to happen is their rider is going to be on the receiving end of some, whoever it is, is going to be on the, on the giving side of an injustice and the getting side of injustice. So he's going to be involved in one where he takes a rider, another rider down and he receives a very steep penalty of, you know, three grid places, whatever, take your pick. However, the, he comes around again. He is the victim of an injustice, and that person only gets like a 10-second race penalty or something, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, yeah. So it just doesn't seem to be fair, and that's just going to ignite fans, and that's just it's the death knell of a series at that point when you start to go there. I used to have uh, Stuart Higgs and have quite the respect for how he ruled. And now it seems like it's become wishy-washy at best. And uh, yeah, that's not uh, a good thing to do. Well, I think in terms of BSB, just to finish off with my final thought on this, you know, BSB and Stuart Higgs, as you say, have tended up until quite recently to resist this notion that every move in racing that doesn't quite go according to plan is worthy of a, a an offence and a punishment. It never really used to be like that. I think, you know, the old classic, you know, Rubbins racing always kind of tended to prevail unless somebody had done something that was outrageously dangerous or ill-judged, in, in which case nobody's going to argue with any penalty. But as I say, you're, we're now at a situation in most of these championships where a rider makes a move, which is legitimate, uh, and it for one reason or another, it just doesn't quite come off. It might be down to them, it might be down to the person that they're overtaking, and inevitably somebody gets a penalty for it. And I just think it's sucking all the joy out of the, certainly from the spectating thing, but it must be exceedingly frustrating for the competitors themselves. As I say, we're not talking about dangerous behaviour 
And we're not talking about things where a rider might be stricken on the track and, you know, something needs to happen to stop the race down, put a safety car out, whatever it might be. But I don't know. I just think we're on a slippery slope with this one. And if, you know, if we're going to go down the route of the way that MotoGP has been for the last couple of seasons, and it's going to really make um, a lot of these racing series a bit joyless, in my opinion. Yeah. Hopefully it won't go that way. Hopefully things will pull back a little bit because these guys are racers, you know, and that's what they're there to do. So let them race. I Things tend to even out as well. I mean, as I say, uh, O'Halloran gets taken out, certainly gets taken out in one incident at Alden Park and then does the same thing himself in the next round on somebody else. So, I mean, these things do tend to level themselves out over the course of a season or a career, don't they? Yeah, I think they do. What comes around goes around. That's sort of just how it was when I was racing anyway. Just one last thing. I I think, again, we mentioned it last week. Tommy Bridewell in British Superbikes, I don't think, uh, certainly as of, this afternoon i hadn't seen anything from him but his team tweeted out earlier this morning and we're recording this on wednesday the 19th jim aren't we uh, so his team oxford products ducati also known as moto rapido tweeted out a nice of work with you tommy very sort of heartfelt goodbye sort of message so clearly tommy bridewell is not racing for that team next year there hasn't been any announcement that i've seen in terms of where he's going to be next year but all of the sensible money is on him going over to the paul bird motorsport squad on the ducatis again both of those seats are now vacant i reserve judgment on that move if that's exactly what happens as is expected so we'll have to see next season how that uh relationship goes but i'm sure it's going to be uh an interesting one i'll leave it <laughs> leave my comments at that for now all right with that that will wrap up the news and let's just move right on into racing at the island you agree okay oh i do so let's just go with moto three to start off the weekend quickly in the first qualifying session muñoz Mino, mcphee artigas rossi and Furosato were all in that first session I don't think uh, anybody was really shocked by who was where in that one. But, you know, you had guys who have previously been in the first, in the second session, now in this session. But Mino would fall down during the session. And by the end, McPhee, Munoz, Tatai, and Furasada were the people who came through to get into Q2. In Q2, Suzuki was down. That was a pretty good little crash that he had. Munoz, Masia all got a new thing flashing up on their dashboard called a conduct warning that's a new one rich well here we go again yeah (laughs) exactly so now my conduct on the track will be dictated to by the stewards in real time okay fine great (laughs) you can see the can of worms that's going to be opened up with that one i don't want to elaborate on that anymore until we actually have an actual real penalty that comes from that the ironic one jim is i'm waiting for this incident where somebody crashes or crashes into somebody else because they're reading one of these bloody messages on the dashboard (laughs) yes (laughs) that is true uh it's kind of (laughs) like we have those kind of signs here on the interstates here in America, and uh, people will be doing 80 in the left lane and slam on the brakes so they can read the board. And in the meantime, somebody rear ends them, and then, yeah, oh, hell breaks loose, and you're sitting in a traffic jam for an hour while we pick up the pieces and assign blame. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, moving on. As it came down to the end of it, uh, Sasaki had a great lap to be on pole, followed by Garcia, Ortola, Tatai, Marrera, Nepa, Afasia was 12th, and I don't have where Guevara was in my notes, but he was not in the top six. I think he might have been 7th or 8th. Probably suffering a little bit from it being his first visit to the island, as I think we touched on last time. I'm pretty sure 
he hasn't been here before. No, he, they have not. Yeah, they came into it in the during the COVID seasons, and yes, we were not yeah. allowed to be at the at the island. So they definitely yep. have never seen it before. Of interest, Sasaki did three laps, and that was it. He was that dominant. Looking for good things from Sasaki on race day. On race day that morning during the MotoGP warm up, there was a deluge of rain that came down, which wetted up the track. They decided to delay the start of the Moto3 race by five minutes as the track was, you know, getting wind blown and drying. And it definitely was damp patches around, but it was fairly wet up through Lukey Heights. A lot of the guys came out on wets, rode a siding lap or two because a lot did come back through the pits again to try to determine what they wanted to do. But the race was declared dry and everyone would start on slicks. When the green lights came on, Garcia and Marrera had great starts. So did Artola, and they led heading into the first turn. Faggio was 15th, and I guess I should say that Guevara is in a position where he can wrap up the championship at Phillip Island. The math was relatively simple. If he won, he was going to be world champion. If he didn't win, and say Garcia did, as long as Guevara would score two more points than Garcia, he'd be world champion. And I think it was something like another six points or more would eliminate Faggia from the contention. So with Faggia having qualified very poorly in 12th, he dropped a few places at the beginning for 15th. Now, Guevara was charging through the pack. Uh, he seemed like a man possessed on that first lap. He was elbows out until they got to Lukey Heights where he went wide. Now, initially, I thought he maybe was on the wet side of the track and he could have lost his braking. But another replay showed that Anchu was very much out of shape and discretion being the better part of Valor because I have a championship to win, kid. Guevara simply ran wide to give Anchu plenty of space to be able to put the bike back to back underneath of him and get going again. There was a big crash. It was Hargardo. He crashed two laps into it. He crashed in the hay shed, which is the you know the run sort of up to Lukey Heights. That whole area of the track was very wet. I think he might have been just a little bit wide and lost it on a damp patch, but that caused Furosato to run off. He then falls off in the wet grass and mud, and he slides almost almost back onto the track. It was a scary situation, Rich. Mm, it was. It's one of those things we just don't want to see. Is a rider coming back to the track, but those things tend to happen. Unfortunately, the friction coefficient on wet grass is much less than the friction coefficient of leather on asphalt. So uh, you could see that the scary part to me was you could see Furosato kind of get his hands out, arms out, and kind of trying to dig his fingers into the grass to slow himself so he didn't go back onto the track. Yeah, That's when you really hold your breath because obviously he feels that he's sliding fast enough to get back to that position and he doesn't want to get back to that position that had me kind of just holding my breath for a minute while everybody was able to get by the race up front now was between these people sasaki garcia guevaro and Moreira. now shout out to kelso because kelso is the local lad now a local is a relative term he literally lives in the western provinces of australia somewhere near perth i believe they said which means he's like over like three thousand kilometers it's basically <laughs> it's like the width not, of the united states it's like saying not, that my not home, around the corner no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's like me saying that my home track is laguna seca and i'm over 2700 miles away from it but it is his race in his home country so kelso was right there too which was very interesting Fazia was going nowhere at this point so it looked as though Fazia was going to 
be at least eliminated from contention for the championship as it wound down. Sort of about halfway through, the front four guys, Guevara, Garcia, Anshu, and Moreno, and Sasaki, I'm sorry, they all had about a one and a half second lead over the second four that were following. Scott Ogden would go down. And he would go down at the stoner corner, which is a fast, fast corner. They did not have any uh, video of it. So I'm not sure what happened to him. But the race between Guevara, Garcia, Sasaki, and Anshu was absolutely amazing, especially through like the first two turns through the Dewan corner. Uh, it was weird to watch Guevara actually throw caution to the wind past people around the outside of the of the loop uh, through the second turn and some of the brave moves he made going through stoner as well. He definitely was riding as if he was a man possessed and that he just you got the impression he just wanted to get this championship over with so he could enjoy life a little bit and not have to carry the pressure on to the next weekend in malaysia zizuki would go down with five laps to go at the turn four which is the now newly named jack miller corner or miller corner but it was basically Garcia who had gotten out front with a few laps to go. He stayed there. He would win. Anchi would be second, I believe. Yeah. Guevara and Sasaki, they were the ones who were definitely out front and on your podium. But by winning the race, Guevara would become world champion, which is congratulations to him for winning the race. It was absolutely, truly an amazing last lap, I thought, by the kid to win it because I think he came from, he was like, last going into the first turn rode uh, what could only be described as the lap of his life to get around and win on you you got to feel sorry for him a little bit rich he's tried tried and tried again to actually yeah. to get a victory this is the closest that he's been it was only three tenths of a second away from having a victory I mean, at least he wasn't fourth. At least he wasn't fourth. That's true. It's just where he's tended to finish yep. so much this year, isn't it? Yeah. But, I mean, Gravara, what can you say? A dominant, brilliant win, as we said a minute ago, given that he hasn't been to this track before. Just a stunning, stunning victory, whichever way you cut it. And I, I want to ask you a question, Jim, actually. Sure. Has Gravara been more impressive this year than Acosta was last year? Ooh, that's a good question. Because I think he has. I can argue it both ways. To me, what Guevara has done is impressive, considering that he sort of has had that consistency across the entire season. Acosta came in like a rocket ship and ripped off five wins in a row, which was that carried him to a championship. He did almost lose it running around with uh, Fazia there at the end. So, you know, that is possible. Uh, But... mm, in fairness to Pedro Acosta, Guevara did have that first season in Moto3. Okay, it was a little bit of a truncated season because of COVID and stuff. So, you know, he's had time to find his feet in the class. But in terms of his championship year this year, he's only had two non-finishes, neither of which were his fault. All the rest of the time, I can't think that he's been outside of the top six. It might have been once, perhaps, but he's been so devastatingly fast and consistent as well. Really, really impressive. So I can't wait to see what he does in terms of the transition up to Moto2. I mean, again, just referencing Pedro a minute, he's had a bit of an up-and-down year in Moto2, won a race or two. So we know how classy Pedro Acosta is, but yeah, Isan Guevara is um, he's an- yet another one, isn't he, that is ferociously quick and consistent and is going to ruffle feathers almost straight away, I would imagine, but we'll find out starting next year. Yeah, between Guevara, Garcia... And Munoz, the future is bright, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yes. I think you are having the great potential 
that you're seeing the next generation of MotoGP riders where we're going to be talking about battles between Acosta and Guevara because one of them is going to be on some form of a KTM and one of them is going to be on some form of a Honda. And you're going to see these absolute dogfight battles between the two. And uh, I think it's going to be amazing, quite honestly. Yeah. You know, and I think we'll certainly put Sasaki in that group and Diogo Moreira as well in terms of coming up through the next few years. I just wonder, I mean, again, I'm conscious that I'm always sort of fascinated to see what's going to happen, but I, li- I genuinely am with most of these people. But, you know, is Dennis Foggia going to do a Nico Antonelli in Moto2? Entirely it's possible. a big question yeah. mark, isn't it? You know, because he's so hot and cold, Foggia. And it was revealing, actually, that, I mean, in fairness to Foggia, he was the first Honda home, but a pretty distant seventh, wasn't he? So was that him or the bike? I mean, as I say, the Honda did not feature strongly at all at Phillip Island, despite there being some pretty long, sort of fast sections, at least, for the Honda to sort of stretch its legs. So it appears through the season, Jim, doesn't it, that the KTM and the derivations of KTM, whether they be gas gases or Huskies or whatever, have really been the dominant bike to be on this year. I agree completely. Early got nothing else to add there. I mean, I guess we should knock off who all got points. As we said, the podium was Guevara, Anchu, Garcia. Sasaki would slip to fourth, followed by Nepa. Then you had McPhee, which was, that was probably one of the best rides that John McPhee has had all year. Yes. Shout out to the Scotsman there. Then uh, Marrera, hometown boy Kelso, Fagia, Rossi, Munoz to tie or Tala, Artigas, and then Juan Masia getting the final point. So if we then move towards the World Championship standings, Guevara leads the cha- has won the championship, I should say, on 290 points. He's 65 ahead of Garcia, who's on 225. Fazia is at 223. So there's only two points between Garcia and Fazia. I think that's going to be interesting to see how that pans out to see if Fagia will finish second two years in a row in this championship, which I, yeah. if he does, that's set, that shows a mark of consistency, perhaps not consistent enough, or he's just the fact that he's slower than some really cool, fast teenagers. Take your pick. I'm not sure. One thing I am pretty sure of Jim, which is that uh, either at Sepang or Valencia or more likely both, I think Dennis Onshu is just going to go absolutely bat what's it, you know, <laughs> for the win. Absolutely going to go for it, I think. I think so. So speaking of the championships, then Sasaki's fourth, Onshu, who will go, I'm just going to say it, batshit crazy for the last few races. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> or if you hate it, write in and tell me about it, guys. Anyway, then Masia in sixth to Suzuki in seventh. Andre Mino eighth and ninth is Diego Moreira. And Holgardo is tenth. Is there anything else from the Moto Three race that we would like to talk about, Rich? No, I think we've uh, I think we've done it. I think uh, okay. Moto Two is up next. Yeah. Moto Two qualifying beckons with Moto Two qualifying. Arenas, Vietti, Chantra, Kubo, Schroeder, and Delaporta are all in that first session. I don't think I'm actually surprised about Vietti being in there as he has been in there for quite some time. Yeah, the trick was Arenas. He's had a, I will call it a very brilliant run of qualifying. And for him to be in that first session shows you potentially how tricky it is to learn Phillip Island because Arenas, I don't believe had ever been there either. Now I could be wrong about that one, but um, uh, he must've been on a motor three bike. I, he's yeah. one, of the, one of the older riders, isn't he? But I mean, a few years away and on a different bike, I suppose you're almost starting from scratch again anyway, aren't you? Yep. So, Obviously, he couldn't get it together. Arenas did fall in the QP1 session. He was down at turn one. He destroyed that bike, and I think he destroyed a bike in the previous other sessions. So there was two gas gases that he wadded up. Again, I think that was more due to the fact that I think 
the ground was so soft around Phillip Island from all the rain that basically a handlebar dug in and then it just started to rip fairings off and it was pretty much trashed. Yeah. I mean, just quickly, Jim, on Arenas, we've said it before, haven't we? He's another of these riders that blows very hot and cold. He's either sort of, I mean, he's quick, but he does jump off quite a lot, doesn't he? So he's going to need to straighten that out because he's into the IO team next year, isn't he? So, I mean, he's in one of the plum seats that there is to be in. I mean, the Gas Gas is a pretty top ride as well, it's true. But, I, yeah, he's going to have to sort of level out his form next year, I think, if he's going to stay put in that team for any length of time. So, yeah, Philip Island, as you say, I mean, I, full disclosure, I didn't get to watch an awful lot of the practice because, of course, literally in the middle of the night in terms of British time. And whilst in the old days I could pull a couple of all-nighters, I just can't do it anymore. So I was up at one o'clock on Sunday morning for the races, but I didn't really catch all of the qualifying and certainly not all the practice sessions but as you say Jim he did have a couple of monster crashes I think even prior to qualifying so that yeah his side of the garage were pretty tired I should think by the end of the weekend I mean the amount of hours they must have spent rebuilding bikes uh, hey for talking about pulling iron riders his crew definitely did that's for sure yeah absolutely yeah anyway sorry no no fine um Gonzalez De La Porta Vietti and Chantra would be the four guys to go on to Q2 in Q2 Fernandez and Gonzalez they have an altercation where they're both looking at, at each other I think Fernandez was way more vocal in the fact that maybe Gonzalez had blocked him or had caused some sort of altercation. And Gonzalez was sort of looking back at like, what did I do, pal? I I don't (laughs) know what you're talking about because I'm on the same track you are. And I didn't quite see it that way. When we got to QP, as we continued through QP2, I should say, we did get to a red flag that happened with 36 seconds left, which kind of blew out a couple of people who were on fast laps, namely because of wildlife on the track. This is always an issue, I think, at Phillip Island, although I think this year it seems to have been much more prevalent than previous years. And I'm wondering if it's mm-hmm. because there was a lack of activity for several years at the track that the wildlife sort of saw it as a refuge and sort of came back maybe um i don't know i don't know how animals think and what they do um but it was one of those things you had to there was a couple near misses on the two very large i think they were geese that tried crossing the track um if you hit one of those things at that kind of speed like simon crayfar was talking about one i can't remember who the rider was talking about uh but they hit that and he it dislocated his shoulder and wrapped his arm around his back to which he thought that he had basically had his arm ripped off. So I think we can all agree that that was the right call by race direction to put a red flag there. Yeah. Phillip Island is traditionally sort of seagull land, isn't it? Yeah. Seagulls that have tended to be the problem, but the, yeah, the the variety and breadth of uh, fauna on display this weekend was, yeah, something to behold. I mean, we had wallabies jumping across the track at one point, obviously the ever-present seagulls, then the geese. I mean, the next thing you were expecting to see a bloody sea all going across the track weren't you so i mean <laughs> or a penguin or a penguin even yeah because there's plenty of those around as well i mean this is an island let's be honest and it's literally right next to the you know the, to the southern ocean so it's not a big surprise that there's a lot of wildlife around but just seemed to be more of a problem this year than other years i mean people sort of coming out saying oh you know what the you know the track organizers doing is i mean it's literally wildlife central that place so i mean you are going to have this problem so I thought they did the right call with a few seconds of the session to go, Jim. What else were they going to do? I mean, didn't want to see a poor little goose getting hit, did we? No, it did hurt Iger, who was struggling, but was on a pretty quick lap, but he wound up being 13th. Pole went to Aldiger, and Aldiger was never headed. He simply just went out and threw down laps. Fernandez would start second, followed by Lopez. So a speed up, a Kalex speed up. So the speed ups, obviously, or Bosca Coras, I should say, were definitely yeah. <laughs> quick. Then there's Arbolino and then Kenneth and Vietti. So Vietti comes through, then, you know, actually,
actually didn't fall off this time in the second qualifying session. So I applaud that to be uh, sixth. Now, race day. When we start here with the racing, we had Lopez get a whole shot. Now, Lopez, if I am correct here, Rich, he had to have a long lap of inconvenience. Yeah. So he got the whole shot. He took off. Arbelina was next. Then Aldiger, Fernandez, Cannon, and then Acosta. Lopez had the hammer down, people. Like, I mean, this kid was on fire and he was hauling the mail. He took his three laps that he's allowed to before entering the long lap of inconvenience, took it and started. Still came out in front. That shows how far ahead he was in three laps. It was a phenomenal piece of riding that I thought for sure he would have wrecked the tires to a point where he would be caught later on in the race. That turned out to be a falsehood as he just did nothing but continue to pull away, pull away, and pull away some more. It settled into a bit of a race between Acosta between Aldiger, Arbolino, and Augusto Fernandez. Arbolino would go down at the hay shed where he lost the front. Now, a couple people had lost there. I think this is another this case of the track had been drawing throughout Moto3. I think that Arbolino was a little bit wide because he, he lost yeah. he lost the front end way late into that corner, and he was way wide in the corner. So I'm going to chalk that one up to a slick tire on a fairly damp piece of track that caused him to then fall, and he did fall, and he was hard hit. He uh, was also, as Simon Crafer pointed out, one of the few riders who was on the hard front tire, which he thought possibly considering that that was one of the first turns that he could have had uh, the other side of the tire, which wasn't symmetric. It wasn't asymmetric. I don't think Dunlop brought an asymmetric front to the island, if I'm correct. And he thought maybe yeah. it might have cooled off in the d- time in between with a little bit of cold track dampness was enough to basically cause him to go down. Right along that time, Aldiger uh, was going backwards through the pack. He wasn't at the front, but then we had a very scary situation with Navarro going down and he went down coming out of, was it out of... Hello. Okay, out of Miller, yes, out of Miller. I was thinking yeah. it was out of Lukey Heights because like all the action was at Lukey Heights, but that's not true for the Haitian. But Navarro was down. He was then hit by Simone Corsi because essentially as Navarro exited the corner, he was very much off the right side of the bike, very far off the right side of the bike, as you would be. And the bike just decided to pick up, pinch and squish. And basically he lost his ability to hold on to. The, it was such a violent grip no grip situation that the handlebars just came out of his hands and he fell off to the right he then was clotted by Corsi now when I first saw this incident Rich I don't know what you thought but I thought immediately that Navarro had a broken pelvis what did you think Mm. when you initially saw it well I was gonna say actually I I detected over the course of the weekend in terms of what i was watching a bit of a change of tack by the tv direction let's say in terms of not showing a lot of what was going on uh, they suddenly seem to have pulled back a little bit now whether that's because of what's happened over the last couple of weekends in other categories that we've spoken about at length so they didn't really i mean we obviously we saw i think we saw that happen live maybe or a very quick replay but they didn't really show too much of it after that and i was going to say for example back in the moto 3 race you mentioned that scott ogden had gone down uh, for example at stoner well they never showed that unless it wasn't caught on camera but i think that's probably a little bit unlikely so 
yeah, I mean, I only got a fleeting glance of the Navarro incident, but I mean, certainly he got hit pretty hard, didn't he? But it was the, I suppose the controversy in this is that, or the worry in this is what happened over the subsequent two laps. Correct. He laid unattended for a fair amount of time in my mind, because it seemed to me like the bikes had come back around to that point and he was still laying at the edge of the track after the impact. So that's for a Moto2 bike. I think they get around there. What? One minute thirties, some, some yeah. something like that. So let's call it 90 seconds, roughly to get back around. I think that's a fair number. He's there and you can see now Marshall's had the doctor hay bale in front of him and they seem to be motioning for some form of a stretcher, which then cemented in my mind that he had gotten a smashed pelvis out of it. Now, it would later be told by Matt Oxley that Navarro had his femur broken from the impact. So it was his femur that was broken, not his pelvis. And it's also believed that he had his... Oh, what's the name of the artery? <laughs> Female, that's your feminal, feminal artery? Well, Ox- yeah, Matt Oxley initially reported, yeah, that the femoral artery had been, well, let's say, cut, cut or severed as a result of the uh, the break in the femur. Now, now, we must just say, Jim, that the it was a compound fracture. So this is, without getting too graphic, because I'll pass out myself, but um, <laughs> this is where you've got bone out of the skin. So that is a serious accident and a serious injury and it you know when that bone is broken and comes out of the body in that way obviously there are things in the way that can get seriously damaged so i think we must just state though matt oxley has since come out because i checked this earlier on and said in actual fact he didn't damage the femoral artery because that is an act that's a, an injury that you can literally bleed out in the matter of a couple of minutes right. uh, if that one goes because that's like one of the major highways of blood through the lower part of the body but, I mean, it is a fact, uh, as you say, Jim, that on a, one lap, and I think it was actually two laps, where they came by at full racing speed and Navarro is just sat, as you say, with the sort of the medical bail next to him. And Marshall's sort of giving odd signals. Uh, one of the things that I read, and again, I, this might be conjecture, so um, we would need to go and actually get this verified. But there was some suggestions that perhaps the Marshals were struggling uh, to communicate with the headsets back to race direction in terms of dealing with Navarro. In the end, he was stretched away. Uh, or maybe there was a concern that he had done something. I mean, a compound fracture of the femur is, is a bloody serious injury all on its own. But if there's a... He was obviously bleeding very profusely because the damn bone had come out of his, out of his leg. So I suppose there was worry that it was you know, the artery might have been compromised as well. So that would certainly account for the length of time that it took to move him. What it doesn't take account for is why the hell the race wasn't red flagged. And this is where most of the kind of uproar has come from, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm glad that it isn't the femoral artery that had been cut because I read that from Matt Oxley and I, I'm never going to question Matt Oxley's choice of words or what he says because uh, he's there and he's accurate with what he has, or at least I think he has enough information to believe what had been said was correct to him. Yeah. But again, knowing what I know about that femoral artery, for him to have been there for two, perhaps maybe three laps, if it was that, I don't think he'd be around because I think you would have bled by that time. Yeah. So again, I'm not there. I don't know exactly what happened. But again, that's a pretty serious injury. I don't care how you slice it. You have a bone that is probably protruding through your leathers, potentially. Yeah. It's got, you're going to be in such massive pain. You're not going to really be able to move you easily. You obviously need to get better medical attention than a stretcher there. There should be a red flag and you should be able to get proper medical attention brought to that corner to take care of that situation that has happened. That's plain and simple. Now, this, as you said, did not happen. 
the race continued unabated, except for yellows in that sector, which, you know, even though you think that you're racing at high speed, you slow down, you may not slow down enough. So you're now putting corner workers, medics, other people in an impact zone, a very precarious position to be in with motorcycles coming at them. The chances were that this could have gotten worse instead of better had they kept going, but they did, they chose to. So this, there was some suggestions about how this should play out. Like, hey, what if you put a red flag button on a motorcycle like the rider pushes that button and the race can be red flagged now some people said that you could use that to your advantage well hey i'm just now in front and it's raining and i'm in one of the classes that isn't flag to flag i push the button but as simon crafer pointed out because this was a string of tweets between simon crafer and was it it was mclaren pete mclaren pete yeah mclaren thank you yeah so it's a long string look it up on twitter but simon crafer said hey this isn't something that one person is going to decide if half the riders decide that the race should be stopped because of rain, then race direction could use that as input or feedback to put in there. Again, you know how I feel about this, Rich. It's the fact that if you have three corners that are successively in a row that are seeing rain, it should be stopped. I think that's a simple solution to this matter as well. So race direction has come under some scrutiny for this problem that was created that may or may not be fully them and their problem. But... Here's, and this is not to disparage corner workers at all. I think that the people that are going to the MotoGP races are, have been there for years, have done a tremendous job, and without them, we could not race. But what I don't like is that why can't you have at least a team of, let's call it anywhere between 12 and 15 people who are going to be corner captains who travel the world with it as a safety team, who you know have EMT-type training, things like that, where they could easily be able to diagnose the situation and decide it's a medical emergency to stop this now versus a corner worker who may or may not be trained in that. You see where I'm going, Rich? Hopefully. Yeah, well... And I don't know. It's a money thing. I know. I understand. Yeah, the TV schedule. Yeah. Uh, which is king. Yeah. Like all complex problems, there aren't simple solutions. I mean, I think that's a fairly reasonable way of putting it. I think what sticks in my craw a bit is the fact that, as I wrote in the show notes, that you know we've got this absurd situation where riders are getting penalised for every last little thing. And yet race direction behave in a way, and I think what happened with in that Navarro incident uh, was sort of almost bordering on unforgivable, really. You got a stricken rider on the side of the track for two laps minimum and no red flag. And, you know, everybody's going through, okay, yeah, they're wave yellows, but people don't slow down that much for a wave yellow. I just don't see how race direction gets to sort of mark his own homework almost on this one. And yet it meets out penalties for the tiniest infractions on everybody else. And I just think it's a, becoming a bit absurd. Yeah, I sort of see the merit of the red button on the bikes for the riders to use. And if you get, I don't know, 60, 65% of riders pressing the button, then that might trigger something. Uh, I can see where that would work in, say, wet conditions or where you've got you know, spray, which is making it impossible to see. But you can't have riders trying to sort of dictate or view what's going on on the side of the track with another rider that's gone down. I mean, that must be race direction's uh, responsibility. And they seem totally inept and unwilling to react when you have serious incidents like this going on. And we've seen it, you know, several times, even just this season. So I don't know, it's, it's a problem. I mean, I don't want to get too sort of um, what's sort of militant about this. I mean, there's plenty of journalists out there, some famous ones, one of whom we've already mentioned, that are very sort of eager to put their view across. And that's what they're paid 
to do, and they're perfectly entitled to do that. This is a pure safety issue for me, and Navarro was put was in a, a serious state as it was, and was put in even more danger by the way that race direction handled it, and I just don't think that's acceptable. Right. Maybe they need to look at, and God help me for saying this, Rich, a virtual safety car like what Formula One has, so that it's in that sector, I think that's sector three, if there's an incident in that sector, you need to have a delta time on your dash. I mean, we're, if we're going to tell people about conduct warnings on their dash, then I think we could put up a that you have to maintain a delta time to where you could mm. you could physically slow the bikes down to allow safety personnel to treat a rider with at least a bit more margin for any more air. Yeah, well, if you think of something like, for example, the Le Mans 24-hour car race, I mean, they have slow zones. Correct. So I'm pretty sure that is a, a signal that goes out to the cars electronically that, that does something that, that slows those cars down. So they're not even relying on the drivers in that situation to drive to a certain delta speed. I mean, I believe that's the case, and I'm quite happy to be told that I'm wrong on that. But, you know, the technology is there to do it. It's a little bit like without going off at too much of a tangent. It's like this endless debate around long lap penalties and stuff and trying to manage, I don't say bad behavior, but poor judgment, let's say, particularly in the lower classes. Again, somebody on, uh, it might have been on Greg's garage pod I was listening to earlier where he was talking to Jason Pridmore and they were saying, you know, you could conceivably have a penalty that race direction uses, which is after, I don't know, say 20 seconds or so of somebody having done something stupid they get a 10 second countdown and then they lose 200 reps for 20 seconds or something. So it's not like a dramatic slowing in speed, but they lose a bit of power for a period of time. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's all sorts of ways that you could do it. Yeah. There just seems to be a, a, a lack of kind of intent to do it. And they, well, instead they just want to keep meeting out uneven penalties all the time. And that just creates a lot of frustration for everybody. So it's for me, that's not the long-term solution to these problems. I think if you try taking 200 revs off of somebody, I think that people are going to complain that, well, I could didn't have any revs and it didn't work right. And I think that's more of a can of worms as opposed to just putting a delta time or a speed limit that you have to maintain through a yellow section. But Sorry, I'm talking about with, with the reduction of revs. I'm talking about if somebody's swerved against another rider rather than pulling them in for a long lap mm. just deal with it on a an enforced little slow zone you know yeah I don't like know. we always say you solve one problem and in doing so you create a whole set of different problems so i mean these things must be thought through in uh, calm consideration and yeah very mindful of the fact that you don't want to create other problems as part of the solution so yeah as we said you know these are complex problems and they're not solved by simple answers so I don't know, but that was not good on Sunday. I mean, I, I think we can all agree on that one. And the simplest solution to that was for simply for race direction to look at the fact that there was a guy sat virtually on the edge of the track. As you say, he clearly couldn't move. So uh, I think it was just incumbent upon them to red flag it. Uh, simple as that. I mean, I, you don't need complicated solutions to that. You just red flag the bloody race and get the guy into safety and into medical care because that's what he needed. So I, I, I yeah. can't disagree with any of it, but I think we can all agree that the race continued and I think we should too, Rich. Yes, yes, we should. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like 15 to three, Lopez has got three and a half second lead over the Acosta Fernandez Salach battle. They have a gap over Cam Bobier, who is showing well for being at the island. I'm pretty sure that's his first time at the island as well. And then Agura was only 14th. 
So he's way down the pack at this point. So Latch would then go down the fast turn one, the doing corner. And we were left with Vietti then falling off at turn six from sixth place, which promoted Bobier up a spot because Vietti had gotten past Bobier. And then the shocker of all shockers that shows up. And that's the fact that in the battle for second between the teammates, Fernandez and Acosta, Fernandez would be down at the Southern Loop. He loses the front and goes down. I was a heart and mouth wow moment for me because all of a sudden, the man who we've always assumed was going to extend his lead in the championship at this point wasn't going to. And by not being able to get the bike restarted, meant Agura, who was riding around by that point in 12th place, was going to leap back to the top of the title championship points race. Big moment, big turns. Yeah. <laughs> With two races left to go, this championship has take, got a lot more twists and turns, I think, to play out in there. However, the rest of it was never in doubt. As Lopez wins, Acosta would come home a lonely second. Now, Dixon, who was not really anywhere with 10 laps to go, had made up time, had gotten past Bobier, and would then go to stand on the podium, mainly as a result of Fernandez falling off, but a great ride by Dixon to get himself to third. Then you had Audiger. And then Gonzalez and then Alcoba as Bobier faded off the seventh. I think that's probably one of his better race finishes, I think, for the American. Yeah. And then from there, it was Chantra, Kinnett, Bobin Schneider, Ayagura getting 11th and picking up a few points. Then Sam Lowe's in 12th, Schroeder 13th, Arenas would be 14th. And the final point would go to Hada, the Japanese rider. And that is how Moto2 finished. Now, that turns this championship upside down, as we said. So Ayagura now leads. He was behind by one and a half points going in. He's now three and a half points ahead of Fernandez with then Kinnett, who is 50 points behind. So Kinnett is mathematically still viable to win. Anything can happen in Malaysia. There could be rain, could be downpours. Uh, this one's going to the wire, folks, and it's going to be one of those ones, depending on who's where on the final couple of laps in Valencia, we'll decide who wins this title. Yeah, we did say, didn't we, a, a crash could potentially be the, the key thing in one of these, and that was an extraordinary mistake, really, from Fernandez, wasn't it, in the circumstances? The only thing I was wanted to ask you, Jim, was clearly there weren't any team orders going on there, because whilst Acosta didn't put a sketchy move on him, clearly he was wanting to get out past Fernandez and get after Lopez, although I don't think anybody was going to beat Lopez. And it was fairly soon after Acosta had got by, I think for the second time, got by Fernandez, that Fernandez went down at the Southern Loop. So whether that just disturbed his rhythm, sent him a little bit wide, or he was just a bit irritated, because, I mean, he'd had that weird incident with Gonzalez, as you say, on the qualifying. So whether, you know, he was feeling the pressure a little bit, which would be perfectly understandable, but, I mean, he's lucky that Aguirre had such a poor race. I mean, it was very lucky for Aguirre, I suppose, in the end, but he hasn't really taken much advantage from Fernandez's crash, has he? So, what do you say, three and a half points or something? I three mean, he's still points. very much all open, but with two rounds to go, and although, you know, weather was supposed to intervene this weekend at Phillip Island, wasn't it? And it didn't really, with the exception of the wind, perhaps. But again, we're going into Malaysia, well, that can be, can be pretty wet, uh, depending on how things go. And Valencia would certainly be pretty chilly i would think given the time of year so could be wet as yeah, well could be wet yeah so i mean whilst it was a, a good result for aguirre by no means kind of clear out front is he so fernandez is still very very much in in this fight yeah three points is nothing i mean it's only five points between first and second so technically ayagura could finish second to fernandez in the next race and still lead the championship anything can happen yeah, yeah. finally poised 
Yeah. For the longest time, the Moto2 Championship has not been that thrilling. So it's been nice to see this one be this tight and be changing this much. So it is all to play for in Valencia, folks. Oh, Rich, should we get to the race of the absolute weekend? Blimey, we haven't even got to it yet. Let's crack into this beauty. MotoGP. Let's start with qualifying. In the first uh, session, Zarco, Bastianini, Pole, Oliveira, Rins, and Mir are all in that first session. Keep in mind, Bastianini's first time at PI on a MotoGP bike. Uh, halfway through, Zarco and Bastianini are going to go through, but with a minute left, it's Paul Aspergero and Mir on fast laps. Then Zarco comes through on a flyer, and then Rins comes through to get out as well. So Zarco and Rins will continue on into the QP2 session. Bastianini, he just missed. Um, but the question was, was he actually blocked or was he held up by Oliveira as he came over Lukey Heights? Uh, I don't think anybody got any penalties for it, but I think his crew were kind of lobbying that he could have had a better lap had Oliveira not been where he was. Again, nobody got any penalties yeah. for it. So I think it's just you know, maybe some Italian hand waving and gesturing, uh, which I think people are now more prone to do just because of the way the stewards react to some of these situations. Yeah. Okay. So the second qualifying session, Mark Marquez had a huge save at turn 10, reminiscent to his 2019 save in turn 10. I'm going to call it Mark Marquez's arm is fixed. After having seen him pick up the bike in Thailand with his right hand arm, I should say, and after pulling off a save on his elbow in turn 10, Rich, I think the arm's fixed. Do you agree with me? I think normal service is resumed. I yes. agree. Mark Marquez is back, people, and that makes Jim happy. <laughs> because I think MotoGP needs Mark Marquez. As much as what people loved or hated Rossi, Mark Marquez is the closest thing to the villain that we have now. And I think everybody needs a villain, right? Yeah. And his, he's a villain because he saves what looks to be certain crashes and continues on. And I think that's part of the magic that we all miss because those they, they did a quick side-by-side -side of the two crashes, two almost crashes, I should say. And they're almost identical. And it is quite striking that Marquez was now able to do that because in the prior seasons, even up to his time in before he left the weekend at Mugello, Marquez could do nothing with his right arm to ride a motorcycle and ride it fast. And now he can. So I think that is awesome. Yeah. No, agreed. And uh, you're happy, Jim, but I'll tell you what, HRC are the happier ones, oh, I, yeah. I would suggest, because, uh, boy, did they need Marquez back and fit. And I mean, he's not probably still quite there yet, and the bike is definitely not there. But as you say, he does introduce, whether it's unwittingly or not, I think it, I don't think he sort of sets out to do it particularly, but he kind of creates a, an atmosphere of a bit of needle just by being there, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. You know, because he's so uncompromising, so dedicated to being fastest and winning. Uh, and we've already seen it since his return. I mean, been one or two incidents, not necessarily, I'm not suggesting for one second that he's done anything wrong, but it just creates that unknown, doesn't it? Uh, that sort of bit of pressure for everybody else. And it's that has been lacking earlier in the year, for sure. So it's good to have somebody in there roughing it up a bit. Mm -hmm. Yep. By halfway, Benyaya was the quickest, followed by Martin, Quattraro, Bezecchi, and Marquez. What it finished up with Martin pulling out a lap record. It was finally the nine-year-old Jorge Lorenzo record for Phelps Island has been trashed. And Martin has it. Marquez would be second quick, Benyaya third, Alessia Spargaro fourth, Quattraro, and then Zarco. Again, Quattraro riding out of his skin to do this. 
Amazingly, I think, Rich, next year, Marquez on a Honda that's even maybe 10% to 15% better than what it is now with an improved engine in a Yamaha and Quattraro riding it at the level he's riding now, followed by Ducati's Benyaya and Bastianini in the factory team, just makes my mouth water at the thought of all of that. Yes, definitely. Next year could be the best season ever. I could very possibly be the best <laughs> season ever. Uh, race day. As we went to the grid, tires were a bit of a talk. Martin went on a hard, hard. Marquez went on a hard, soft. And Ben Yaya went on a medium, hard. Now, everybody thought Marquez was crazy for the soft. That was like, there's no way the soft is going to go the distance. This is impossible. This is not what you want to do. And that was the big talking point that was coming out of it. The race starts. Martin gets a whole shot, followed by Marquez and Aleish Benyai, who went backwards slightly at the start. Now, that was, as Simon Crafar would tell us, the result of Benyai not being able to engage his front ride height device or front hole shot device that you know lowers the front end of the motorcycle in preparation for the start. He couldn't engage the system. So he didn't he didn't get as good a start as he wanted, but boy, did Benyai put the elbows out, didn't he, Rich? He did. He just yeah. kind of went through everybody there. Uh, I thought that Martina and Marquez are going to pull away. Now, I personally thought, I don't know what you were thinking, Rich, but I personally thought that with Marquez on the soft, that Marquez was going to try to pull away, break away, and go for it and see if anybody could run him down late in the race. That did not happen. Did you think that was Mark's plan? That's what he was thinking with the with the heart, with the soft? Well, I sort of tweeted out just prior to the race starting that I thought Martin was going to win. What I hadn't figured was that we were going to effectively get a Moto3 race, albeit with the big bikes. Uh, I don't think anybody saw this one coming, did they? And there are some reasons for it, which we're going to get into in a moment. Yeah, I mean, the Marquez going on the soft, which is your question. I thought that was going to be a mistake, if I'm honest. But, you know, little do I know, because, again, the pace of the race was a little bit slow, which we'll come on to. So maybe that helped Marquez a little bit, or maybe he figured that that might be the case. I mean, who knows? But, uh, yeah, I mean, I just come back to the same old position, really, which is it's great to have Mark Marquez in the race (laughs) up the front. I mean, end of. I mean, uh, all the rest of it's detail, isn't it? That's true. Speaking of details, Quattraro was going backwards. In fact, he was so far out of shape heading into the Miller corner that he had to run wide, and that put him down to last. Then, Quattraro would take off trying to catch the front. He was turning laps that were faster than the leaders. Again, Rich, as you just pointed out the lead group was slow they weren't turning times that everybody expected them to be turning well cause quadraro was about almost a second quicker than what they were doing out front i thought wow we're gonna watch quadraro ride through the front which is going to be amazing however the only person who was actually riding towards the front was another inline motorcycle your man alex renz who was absolutely spectacular especially through the southern loop the amount of passing he was able to do going into turn two was mind-boggling which goes to show you how nimble that suzuki actually is and given that they had found a few more ponies in that motor he was able to hang with everybody on the straightaway. This was an impressive ride by Renz at this point. Now, disappointment would happen because Quattraro would eventually fall off at turn two and throw away his lead in the championship. Shocking development that happened there. Again, everything's happening everywhere and you're not too sure where in the world to look as both Miller was then promptly knocked down at his own corner by one Alex Marquez, who simply Mm. misjudged it again and blatted into Miller. Now, he, I thought that was a scary-looking crash, 
myself, Rich, it appeared as though that because, you know, Miller hangs off the bike by a tremendous amount. And with <laughs> Alex Marquez forgetting that you actually have to break to go around corners, simply decide to use Miller's back as a berm or a stopping point, if you will. And the way Miller's head whipped backwards, even in slow-mo, was scary to me. I thought for sure Miller was going to be at least lying on the ground for a little bit longer than he was, but he seemed to be rubber and popped right back up again. Thankfully, without any lingering injuries other than maybe pride and some bruising. Well, disappointment. Uh, and bitter disappointment because I think Miller would have had something to say in all of this, but oh, that's not true. Renz would get by Marquez, then Renz would go to the front and he would go past Benyaya. Again, he would use his speed through the doing corner to set up a pass that he could run the tighter inside line and carry speed through that was there. Now, Marquez the whole time is either second, third, or fourth, but he's never first. But Benyaya has been first for a while, but then it's Renz who will go back to the front, but then it goes all back down again. And while we're all not paying any attention at all, because we're all looking at Benyaya, Renz, and Marquez, they've sort of dropped Martin off, but Bezeki has showed up. So has Alicia Spargaro. And oh, by the way, some guy named Brad Bender, who had a horrible qualifying on the KTM, was like sixth. It was incredible that Bender was where he was as well. So all of this is craziness is happening. Martin would go by at the hay shed, which was a brave, brave move that Martin put on Marquez, which was absolutely amazing. Yeah. Bezeki would go by. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead, Rich. You had something to say about that? Well, no, I wrote it in my notes. I put mega move by Martin on Mar- Marquez of all people <laughs> at the hay shed of all places. I mean, bloody hell. I mean, that was a hell of a move. That was really got my attention anyway. I wrote in capital letters and then underlined the word brave. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the boy has some cojones. That is for sure. Oh, we're, we're very much towards the end here. Bezeki is sort of right behind Benyaya. Now, this is a guy who's best friends with Benyaya. He's a guy who's gone through the uh, VR46 Academy together. Was he going to just, did he have team orders? Was he going to try to ride in between everybody? Because this is like with about five laps to go. It's it's Benyaya, it's Bezeki, it's Marquez, Rins, then Martin. And of course, now Luca Marini's joined the show. So it's a horde of Ducatis. <laughs> you have four Ducatis, one Honda and one Suzuki at the front at this point. And we get down to the final lap to where Renz gets by Marquez. And then he winds up going by Benyaya on what was brilliant moves. Now, Renz did that in turn two when he sort of moved Benyaya offline and pushed him out. That let Marquez come through as well, which put Benyaya back to third. Benzeki was still back there. Then there was Bashanini, who we never paid any attention to, that Bashanini had ripped through the field. Again, the man who's so good at conserving a tire on a MotoGP bike, probably the best at conserving a tire on a MotoGP bike, shows up at the end to be near the lead. But because Renz would ride the last lap of his life, I think, having broke hard enough to not allow Marquez to get by at the Miller corner and was able to use the sweet handling through the sweeps that led from the Hayshed up to Lukey Heights. And again, another, he he was able, with that tight line on the Suzuki, ride a defensive line through Lukey Heights that kept Marquez out. You thought for sure maybe Marquez Marquez was going to get a draft or a sniff of a draft out of the last turn, but maybe Marquez had used up his tire. But then here comes Ben Yai. You're thinking maybe the Ducati and a double draft might be enough to do it, but he didn't. The race would go on to be won by our good man, Alex Rins. Marquez would, Ooh. yes. <laughs> You don't know Rich is a massive Alex Rins fan. So I'm happy for you, pal, that the Suzuki wins. So he wins. 
Marquez is second. On the podium is Benyat. Bezeki then fourth. Bassini fifth. Marini sixth. Martin would slip down to seventh. Zarco would be eighth. Then Alicia Sparger would be ninth. Now, Aleish had another problem with his electronics and his system. I forget what it was. I had seen it read somewhere. I do not remember what, but it was something to the effect that he did not have the right traction control setting or something of that nature. So apparently electrical gremlins are following the Aprilia team around. Bender would finally get 10th place uh, position. This was of the fact that the top seven riders were all covered by eight tenths of a second. That has to be some kind of record, to be honest. This was an instant classic, Rich. It is a race that you show your friends. This is why we watch MotoGP. It's probably the number one race you should show your friends why we watch MotoGP. And now, because Quattro did not score any points, Ben Yaya rockets to the top of the championship standings, having erased a 91-point deficit. If he wins the championship, and I think Ben Yaya will now, I think it's foregone conclusion, because as we said, Malaysia and Valencia are basically Ducati-esque tracks. That will be a record that will take a long time to stand. And also, he will have more DNFs than anybody and win a world championship, which I'll tell you something there too, people, about what's going about the craziness of this season and what is all going on. But Ben Yaya will take a 14-point lead into Malaysia over Fabio Quattrall. Then Alicia Spargaro is another 13 points behind. Bastianini is another 15 points behind Aleish and Miller is 12 points behind uh, Bastianini. Bender, Zarco, Renz, Martin, and Oliveira round out the top 10 in the championship. Rich, I don't have any other words to describe this race other than spectacular, amazing, and bloody terrific. Yeah, it was just a brilliant, brilliant race. And as you say, Jim, it's the kind of race you kind of hope for, don't you? You sort of get up early in the morning or you watch it at lunchtime, whatever the time zones might be, and you just pray for a race like this. And you don't get served up one quite this good very often. I mean, just prior to recording we were having a chat and i think it's worth just sort of bringing this up that you know the lap times weren't actually that quick because i think a lot of people were in rear tire preservation mode i always say that you know this notion that bikes have to get quicker every year is not necessarily always a good thing and although you might say well okay they were deliberately going a bit slow because of the tire or perceived tire issues or potential tire issues nevertheless it, it makes for a flipping good race when you get a pack racing with top guys like this now, I know we complain about pack racing in other classes, but obviously these guys are a bit more experienced and so on. So, yeah, we didn't really see much use of the ride height devices. I mean, some people were using them at certain corners, but by and large, nobody really needed to bother because of the nature of the track. It's just a brilliant, brilliant motorcycle racing track, isn't it, Phillip Island? Arguably, I would say the best track in the world for motorcycle racing. And although it was quite windy, I mean, the rain never showed up. It was chilly, but it was I think wind was more of the issue. But the aero didn't really turn out to be quite such of a problem as people predicted in the end which was interesting i mean perhaps just the fact that they're going so fast means that the arrow really does help them rather than hinder them so i mean that, that was a few interesting points but above all else jim i mean my overriding takeaway from the moto gp race is just uh, an abated joy for the suzuki team not so much alex rins because i mean he's sorted out for next year but i'm sure a lot of these guys and girls are still looking to what they're going to do next year and for them to have a win like that must be a great end to you know i mean bittersweet it's true but nevertheless uh, a great end to the season for them did you hear that they're doing a test in japan uh this week suzuki they're testing <laughs> new parts why 
I think this one came from Simon Patterson. Yeah, apparently it's in the budget. They've got new parts to test, parts that will never be raced. So they're out in, I don't know if it's Suzuka or Sugo or wherever they're going to be somewhere with the Japanese test rider out testing new parts. I mean, it's just bonkers, isn't it? I mean, you've got a bike that is that good and, you know, they're just throwing it away, Suzuki. And I still can't really get my head wrapped around the sort of the strategic direction or justification for why they're pulling out of the series. Yeah. It's bizarre. Could I just mention one other thing? Oh, please do. I will attribute this to Simon Patterson. There's this problem that's been brewing for quite some time about the new front tyre that Michelin want to bring in. But basically, Michelin can't get any of the teams to test it because testing time is so limited and they've got so many of their own parts that they want to test that Michelin cannot get you know the top riders to spend half a day or a day testing that front. So Simon Patterson, I thought, had an absolutely brilliant idea, which was that somebody, if or even Dorna, should take the Suzuki bikes uh, slots keep them on the grid next year, buy all of the spare parts that Suzuki have, run a team, and they just maybe even just run one bike, Sylvain Gintoli or somebody, and they just run the development Michelin rubber all year. They don't score any points. They just use it as a test bench Mm. for the next-gen front tyre. Because obviously the front tyres come up as a problem because of the aero and the extra grip and pressure that that's putting on the front end of the bike in particular, and the fact that riders are finding it very hard to overtake, and the aero effect is overtaking the front end grip. So the new Michelin needs to come in, and it was scheduled to come in next year, but it's so badly delayed through lack of development that that at the moment, I think Michelin is saying the earliest will be 2025. So use these bikes. You're not filling those two grid slots with anybody else else next year so just run one or two bikes and, and use it as a test bench i mean i thought that was a great idea obviously it would take some money to do it but at least it would keep a, another bike or two potentially on the grid but you know i, I don't have much hope that that's going to happen do you no it's as it is with all great ideas they are squashed by the people at dorna yes so uh, <laughs> yeah i you know you could easily take it and say look there has to be you know, you, you have these in-season tests that everybody does. So there's pre-season testing. When we have like these in-season tests that happens, what, after Hereth? Isn't there usually an after? Isn't there usually one right after Hereth? Uh, after Valencia. Well, no, not the end of the year test, but I mean in-season. I thought that in-season oh, there was pardon. one after. Yes. Then you get another one that's sort of after this is in the summer, right? At the summer break. Uh, I forget mm-hmm. where they tested this year with it. What it'd be simple just to say, look, guys, you have to mandate one half of a day. That everybody's got to run Michelin's new rubber. You can easily mandate that. You can say, look, we need this development. If you guys do this, fine. You're not losing that much. The teams aren't losing that much. Or you do it the final hour of a day or whatever. Take your pick. I mean, yeah. Or just give them an extra day testing. I mean, you know, don't. Yeah, well, somebody's got to pay for that. I mean, you know. Well, I know, but, you know, they used to test till the cows came home, didn't they? And now Uh they can hardly test at all. And that is the problem. I know it was a cost cutting exercise, really, to try and limit the testing or or to uh, effectively stop testing, which is kind of where we are, really, compared to how it used to be. So to add one more day on, I think most people would probably jump at the chance to be honest oh i think so it just requires the governing body and the powers that be to allow it to happen or indeed as you say to mandate it that it should happen if michelin need that track time because whilst they can hammer around with other riders test riders and so on you need the top boys to be doing it and i say boys on the basis that there aren't any females in the motor gp class yet but you just gotta make it happen jim as you say haven't you so yeah uh, but with two bikes that good leaving the grid next year and with new parts being develop still because budgets are in place and i guess they're just going ahead business as normal until they're told to finally stop at the end of whenever it's just it beggars belief really doesn't it 
It is weird. That's for sure. I mean, if you're not going to lay a new front tire until 2024, man, these guys are going to have a huge problem trying to figure it out because they're going to have a tire pressure sensor. Everybody's going to have to run to the legal limit of what the tire is supposed to be. And yeah. it's going to be monitored. And yeah, if you need, if Michelin needs to build a new tire, just be darn and demand it. Under the grounds of safety, you must do this. <laughs> you know, nobody, nothing trumps safety, right? It, it, it's like, yeah, yeah. it's like yeah. holding four aces, right? Nothing's going to beat that. Although Dorna's recent record on safety matters oh, is not, that's not exactly, but let's not go there again. Uh, Jim, last yes. question before we go, because we're running over time probably already, but is Quattraro toast now? Yes. A friend of mine who I, I work with, we had this discussion and he said, he says, this is Ben Yaya going to win the title now? I said, yes. He says, well, that's that's a shame because now Ben Yaya is, he agrees because he said that he agreed because Ben Yaya is now inside Quattraro's head. And I'm like, what on earth are you talking about? There's no way Ben Yaya is in Quattraro's head. I said, what you've witnessed is a man riding an inferior motorcycle above and beyond the limit for, what, what do we have, Rich, 20 20 races, 21 races. Yeah. For 19 of, you know, 19 and 21 races. And he finally got to tracks that do not favor his motorcycle whatsoever. And he's riding so bleeping hard that he's now crashing because of it in a desperate attempt to hang on to his world title. That just goes to show you just how poor the Yamaha is. And how brilliant and Quattraro how, has been. That's yeah. the thing. It's Quattraro should be world champion just because of how he has ridden this year. He will not. He will always, he will, he will have that championship. The scary part to me is, or the fascinating part, I guess I guess should say, is that Quattraro gets a bike with a new motor next year. That's going to be interesting. The Ducati is obviously going to be good next year. Can Honda build a bike with Marquez's leadership about what they need to do to be better? Plus, he's just like Quattraro can ride well beyond with some magic dust or something that makes that bike better than it is. There's three to four people now that are literally going to be battling for the championship all year long, which is what we really want to see. It is a very much a shame that Quattraro will not be re- rewarded for the amazingly hard work he has put in on such an inferior motorcycle. Well, I think he's kind of rewarded in the fact that everybody, including us, is saying that, I guess, Jim, isn't it? I mean, uh, going back to, what was it, 2020, when he was in with the shout on the Patronus Yamaha that season, and he kind of, I think the common consensus was that he kind of lost the kind of between the ears a little bit towards the end of the season. Last year, obviously, he was brilliant. This year, I don't think there's any suggestion that it's getting to him. As you say, Banya is not in his head. He has just now got to the point where, even with the brilliance with which he's riding, he cannot overcome the deficiencies of that Yamaha. And as a benchmark, you know, Morbidelli fell off. I mean, uh, Cal Crutchlow, who's actually doing sterling work and vastly superior work to what Andrea Davizioso was managing on that bike. I th- I forget where uh, Crutchlow finished. Was it about 11th or something? Thirteenth, um, uh, 13th, 13th. So, I mean, on paper, not a brilliant result, but first Yamaha home. So, I mean, something to be said for that. Yeah, I mean, in some respects, I think Yamaha probably have performed better than we thought. Because if you go back to the beginning of the season, we thought they were in oh, yeah. right from right from round one. And, you know, it's it's only really thanks to, in the most part, Fabio's just unbelievable skill and speed that he's been in the title hunt this long. But I mean, Phillip Island was going to be, was meant to be the track that would suit the Yamaha the most out of these last few rounds, wasn't it? And it's, I think it's game over unless there's some kind of like major meltdown or 
brain out incident between the other Ducati riders that takes Banyaya out or something crazy like that. It's hard to see how Banyaya doesn't just protect what is... I mean, I, I know people were saying he could have fought a bit harder for the win and in the end he kind of took perhaps the, the pragmatic view of saying third was a good result, 14 points ahead. It's not an insurmountable lead, certainly, is it? But it's pretty comfortable going into a couple of tracks which is going to favour his bike, yeah. It just means he's going to follow Quattro home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Nothing to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, easy easy as that. I mean, we'll see. We've got Malaysia this weekend, so we haven't got long to wait for the next dose of action. So, um, yeah, can't wait. All right. I think that wraps it up, Rich, as we have gone long again, which is normal. So, everyone, be sure that you watch Malaysia, but in the meantime, ride safe. Cheers, everyone. (laughs) 